Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined tonight by co-hosts Matt Cummings and Tobias Wright. All right, tonight, are super titles distracting? Someone at English National Opera seems to think so. In Shock Talk, we give our hot takes on what opera companies should be doing to let audiences know what's happening on stage. After that, it's a Parisian edition of Crunching the Numbers. We'll run through the Paris Opera's 2019-2020 season and see how it measures up to the famously infallible Dodson scale. Plus, in the two-minute drill, you get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. 847-866-9687. Or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. So many ways to reach us. How can we reach you, Matt Cummings? Oh, you can reach me by listening to my dulcet tones on this opera <laughs> podcast every week that I'm here. Every was that? This is the first time. Like, it's the first time in a couple of weeks. I've been out on the I've been out on the road helping the children to love opera. Helping the children. Oh, our yeah. true I hero. Haven't... How about you, Tobias? Right? Have you been a hero today? I. Mm, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just by being you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I. Yeah, I was here today. I'll take that. <laughs> Who's got some sports talk for me? Because I don't have anything. We like are usual. in. <clears throat> so we've actually entered a really beautiful part of the sports calendar in Ooh. which baseball is starting. NFL is in the middle of free agency, which is super exciting. NBA is about to hit the playoffs. Hockey's doing hockey stuff. If you're into hockey Classic. stuff, for me, you're counting down the 16 months until the Olympics come back. Ah. That's <laughs> really exciting. I'm sure there's tennis somewhere with a handsome young boy playing that Oliver's watching. Oh yeah, see. He's- also, when George isn't here and when Oliver's not here, it's like we're the island of misfit toys, <laughs> and we get to do whatever we want to do. <laughs> I feel just this surge of power just coming through me. You know what I want to do? What I want to do right now? I want to start the chalk talk. So you know what? I will. Chalk talk on Opera Box Score. English National Opera has announced that they will be dropping super titles. Well, at least for one performance per production starting next season. The company noted that while most patrons like super titles, some do not. And apparently the company feels the need to give those opera goers the opportunity for a title-free experience. The ENO, of course, presents its operas in English, so could be a moot point. But uh, what do you guys think? So super titles in English can still definitely be helpful sure uh because a lot of times the these operas are written in other languages and when you have 
Italian vowels translated into English vowels, for instance, si. uh, they the words that would be normally comprehensible in English become not so comprehensible. Mm-hmm. And that's like part of the problem with creating a singing translation in the first place mm-hmm. is you definitely want to match up the sounds of the opera as closely as possible. But like translating that uh, intelligibility a- adds a, a lot of layers of wrinkles. I agree with you. Um, it's interesting because I, I mean, I think super titles are a necessary thing for hmm. foreign languages. And I think what's going to be really interesting, especially specifically speaking to ENO is the data that they've collected that led to this decision. Right. Can that was my sort of first reaction reading this as well, because uh, the, the super titles have been around in America since, uh, what, the 70s? The 80s. Oh, they were yeah. The, the, yeah, the first opera house to institute super titles was uh, New York City Opera oh, in, yeah. in 1983, right, right. and I think that they were pretty new, and I want to say that Canadian Opera Company was the, comp- was the one that, that pioneered it, and then Beverly Sills in, put them into the state theater where New York city opera was performing at the time i also know that there was there were some instances of that in performances in i believe i, I want to say beijing i could have been tokyo I'm, I'm i'm mixing up uh china japan which is very white man of me but uh, uh there were, that was sort of uh, i think where the sort of the the idea came to the west kind of mm-hmm. via there from the stories i've been told but these have been a, a pretty accepted thing for quite a while now i mean I, they've I, been part of opera performance since before any of us in the studio today oh absolutely been, were born i yeah. did uh, i did a little bit of research for this particular segment, I found a study uh, from 1991. That was how far back I felt like I had to go to find people who were still kind of anti <laughs> the whole idea of super titles. Well, you know, to that point, though, since so we're all, you know, we don't have to disclose our ages, but let's say, what, we, what, did, what did we say the first one? Uh, 1983 is when New York City Opera, the first, the, the, so which was pretty high 30 profile. some years ago, yeah. right? So a lot of the people who could potentially be anti super titles still remember a time in which True. they weren't the the norm right i think that's fair to say but i i i haven't had a single conversation with someone who wasn't pleased by the idea of super titles i've heard people complain about the placement right of the execution titles. is a different question yes. I'm, but i am curious about who uh, when when you talk about english national opera specifically right. You know, I think it's worth noting that they're only designating one opera performance. Right. So, I mean, this is a beta test for a lot of other mm-hmm. opera companies, yeah. right? Um, you know, also, <laughs> it's kind of one of those things, too, where I feel like they can only do this because they're in English. They Like, their audience knows it's going to be in English. They're giving you one performance to say, we're not going to have that distraction. I don't think the audiences would be... So I think we always think of our hometown team, the Lyric, right? Right. And I don't think Lyric Opera could say, for this performance of Tales of Hoffman, there will be no super titles. <laughs> right. And they su- could maybe get away with it for like the, for this performance of Merry Widow. We're or not like going to do super titles. Or like this production of West Side Story. Yeah. I kind of hope they don't do super titles for West Side Story. I don't, do they honest. do them for the musicals? I, I don't remember them doing them for I don't the musicals. Rem- I actually don't either. Which is to see, so to, to that point, though, how necessary are they for English, you know, operas or operettas or musicals. Well, I do think it's a different question when you're talking about operas that were written in English versus operas that are being totally. sung in English. For sure. And this season of English National Opera has some of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I w- what I was really wondering about was how many performances do they have if they're only doing one in if they're doing one without supertitles because if they do like four performances, that's a big percentage mm-hmm. of the audience yeah, that they're true. that they're wanting to cater to. I mean, that's a big change. Uh, so it probably is a pretty big percentage of the audience, but they do they do at least 10 production, 10 performances of most of their shows. Right. So 
it definitely feels more like a little bit of a pilot program, a little bit of a weather balloon. Yeah. I, I, I would be really interested to see, because I imagine they probably send out audience surveys and stuff. I would it, I'd be interested to see the results for this particular Guys, keep me uh, floating. Experiment. I'm going to Google some, I'm going to Google translation of like, what should we go with here? Not, I mean, the one of KJ Lita Menina is pretty spectacular. Okay. I would try to find guys, that translation. I'm going for okay. it, and then we're going to sing it on air, okay? Well, oh, oh, Just God. give me a moment. Uh, here, <laughs> Look forward to that. Yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the things that I was kind of thinking about with this whole uh, argument um, is that uh, you do really, even in operas that were written in English, you do often have audiences... Uh, struggling to understand what's going on without supertitles. Yeah, I mean, Britain operas, those texts are so dense yeah. and so full of illusions, and the sentence structure is very complicated, even though they were written to be heard without being read. A lot of times it sure. is, it, it, it's not necessarily possible to understand everything that's happening in a Britain opera the first time through, even with supertitles. Yeah, and so. it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a... I, I think sort of the historical reason for that is... Uh, well, there's there's a f several different reasons, I'm sure, but the the through line that I kind of see comes from a quote by Dietrich Fischer Dieskau that I tried so hard to find and could not. Um, but uh, it, the the gist of it was was that he was complaining um, that when he was a, a young singer uh, or a young child, even before he became a big uh, leader singer, uh, he remembers opera singers being always very clear, and you could always understand every mm -hmm. word. Part of that, of course, was just sort of stylistic shifts. Early 20th century opera singers favored lighter voice types, uh, more bubbly, sort of pre-Puccini-esque kind of voices. Um, and as you get later on in the century, it's heavier and heavier and heavier voices with larger orchestral textures underneath, so it's harder and harder to understand more, them. More repertoire-specific singing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, here in the 21st century, I think we're sliding a little bit back towards um, uh, lighter voices. But now we have the interesting sort of twist of supertitles being so much the norm that composers no longer really compose with the idea of clarity of in text mind. Yeah, of text uh, specificity in mind in terms of exactly. the... Exactly. A lot of times you have... Uh, words being sung above the staff by coloratura sopranos in like Thomas Addis operas. <laughs> yeah, I like I don't know I don't understand how you would ever under how you could ever comprehend the words that Ariel is singing when she's singing them on like a high F sharp. Mm -hmm. I, I love I love the music, but it, you you can't understand a word she says. Even if you even if you listen to opera for years and have really got it in your ear, it's it's impossible. And sometimes that kind of works because she's sort of a ethereal character and you're going to be getting the super titles really, anyway. I haven't really thought of that perspective. Yeah. You know, yeah. and like actually then I'm like right now going through scores. I've I did two world premieres last year. <laughs> like, yeah, there was so much stuff above the staff, and like I'm not critical of the music. I thought the music was beautiful, but now that I think about it, like there is so much stuff that like that gets in the way of text projection. It, it really does, and it's like there was no clarity. It was making yeah. sure that the sound was the right color for the moment rather than for the clarity of the text. Philosophically, it's kind of interesting because it's it's an extension of the basic theatrical technique, right? It's sort of like using a microphone versus purely acoustic projections. Now, of course, using a microphone in an opera house, generally speaking, is blasphemous, um, and I pretty much agree with that, uh, except for, you know, certain new works. Um, but it well, really is an we, extension that you know, we are now living in. You we, know? We've been mic'd 
Matt and I were in a production of Grapes of Wrath. They're, they were requested. The the singers mm. are. That's mm. part of the orchestration, actually. Is yeah. that it's for amplified. Voice well, yes. When, when it's voice. when it's written for that, absolutely. Yeah. But amplifying something, unless you are in a really acoustically awful situation that mm-hmm. wasn't written to be amplified, does strike me as a little. So we've kind of taken ourselves out of just like the realm of super titles. Are they necessary? So we've we've moved far away from that. Yeah. So thinking. Um, more specifically now, like back to the main point, could you ever envision going to an opera that wasn't in English and being comfortable with the fact that there weren't super titles? Yes, for, I, I've done it. For operas that I know well, it doesn't really bother me anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, if I, but that that has to do with, you know, kind of the year the research that used to be expected of audiences right. to show up with. I mean, if it's an opera like Marriage of Figaro, I honestly do not need super titles anymore, but mm-hmm. that's because I <laughs> have been in it. I've seen it, may, maybe nine different productions of it. I even ran the super titles of it at one point, so mm. I've spent time like reading. I feel the like we should all take a drink now because Matt's just humble bragging. Shut I mean, but that's just like that's <laughs> no. that's the kind of work. That well, goes okay, into but not well, uh, so the reason and understanding the opera on a granular level. Exactly, and that was my point in asking that question: Would you ever be comfortable? And the point, or my thought process there is that the work that's expected. So, and I think I actually talked about this last week. You never go to a movie that you don't know what it's about, right? And a lot of people who you know by, I mean? by the end of the movie you don't know what it's about. No, I'm saying I wouldn't just buy, go randomly to a movie and be like, "Give me a ticket to this," unless mm. I was having a bad day and just needed to disappear for like two and a half hours and then nobody call me. But I'm saying like I wouldn't go see a movie if you had zero idea about right. what you were getting into. I would be like, "Oh, I've seen this trailer," or "Oh, I know this actor," or "Oh, sure, I understand sure, what sure. this story is." Right. So mm-hmm. I have a basic education and a foundational understanding of what I'm walking into, and I just feel like people who are like. This is a little more macro, I guess, but like people are like, opera's unapproachable and it's it's too highbrow and plus it's in a foreign language. Well, if you do a little bit of the research beforehand, and this is what I tell people all the time, like, I don't know, I think I'm intimidated by it. Do the research, read a libretto. It takes like 20 minutes to read a libretto or read a synopsis on Wikipedia. And because these guys, most of them, were of a genius level of writing for their operas, you don't have to watch the super titles. Mm. You can literally understand the story right. and uh, and then hear it. And and so that kind of like large scale arc of the opera, I think, is going to come through more or less with or without super titles. Agreed. What I think the super titles add is you can add that gr- you can add that level of granular detail that's there for people who want to look for it. Yeah. Uh, both opera connoisseurs, but also like people who complain about opera singing acting, like mm-hmm. you know Kathleen Turner. Well, you don't necessarily need that acting if the audience isn't going to understand the words that you're saying anyway. Agreed. Yeah. But if the yeah. audience is going to have an idea of what you're saying, it it frees you up to it. it you know that all of your gestures are going to be interpreted with more knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know that you. It, I think it frees you to take more interpretive chances because you're not. It you know it, it lets productions be a little bit more daring because they're not you're not just worried about telling it in a, in a picture book. It lets the acting choices be stronger because you're not yeah. just worried about like how can I possibly communicate general vague love for four minutes. <laughs> I do think that there's. Let me introduce you to my sex life. Yeah. <laughs> can we say that on the air? I don't know. Oh yeah, we're we're, we're fine. We, we can say anything <laughs> we want. George isn't here. Oliver isn't here. We can do whatever we want. The FCC is not here yet. <laughs> Banging down the doors. They'll find us eventually. They're uh, not going to let us that. get super titles. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that uh, go- going back a little bit uh, to. Um, when you asked, would you see an opera without super titles? And I had the interesting sort of 
uh, opportunity um, when I when I was in Europe. Um, you may drink. Uh, I, I happened to see uh, two productions really. without supertitles in English uh, in uh, different circumstances. One was um, uh, at the Vienna Volksoper, the People's Opera. They don't do uh, supertitles there. They and only they do, do everything in German. Yep, exactly. Um, and that one was Magic Flute, which I've seen 1,200 times. I could not connect to it. Uh, but I did see um, at, uh, uh, at the Garnier Opera House in Paris, I saw a production of Hansel and Gretel. Now, of course, I know the story of Hansel and Gretel in general, mm-hmm. but I'd never seen the opera And there before. were no subtitles? There were super titles. They were only in French. Subtitles? Super Super, titles. super sub, sir, Forgive me. whatever you want to call them. A- apparently, Canadian Opera Company owns the trademark to calling them sir titles. That is one thing Seriously? I learned during my research, but continue okay. with your story. Uh, I'm very interested in that uh, <laughs> tangent. Anyway, so I saw Hansel and Gretel. Of course, I knew the general story, as I said, but um, but I was completely engaged the entire time, hmm. simply because it was it was a modern production. It was up. It was very up to date. Very sort of of the time. And it wasn't just me. There were a lot of other people in my group who were not opera people. It was many of their you know, it was within the first three times they'd seen an opera, and they were all completely engaged because the acting, the story, the the directorial specificity was so good, we genuinely didn't need it. But I don't know if that's the same, I don't know if that's comparable to going to see like Death in Venice. Or yeah. um, perhaps Peter Grimes, and not knowing what you're going, and not knowing what you're getting yourself into, because there are some, there are, I think, long stretches Peter of Grimes. that opera where Sorry. you can just watch what's going on stage and listen with your ears, and it's like watching a movie. But there are parts of it where you're like, I have no idea what words they yeah. are. Well, saying. bringing it back, maybe from directing a, a little bit, and back into the sort of the super title world, uh, if we acknowledge that super titles are great and very helpful but occasionally they can be placed poorly or even be like a bad font size or uh, fun fact about me uh, I discovered I needed glasses because I couldn't read the super titles uh, for a show in Aida that's uh, how thank god for music thank god oh, I, I would have been music also today. music also taught me that I needed glasses <laughs> really wait, wait. it was I couldn't see the board in college uh, for music theory <laughs> I don't have glasses because I'm perfect. Okay. But I think it's because I couldn't see that I got poor grades, not because I couldn't comprehend it. That's what we all like to tell ourselves. (laughs) Bring it back from our poor eyesight and Matt's supernatural eyesight uh, for a little bit. Uh, I I think that um, one of the things I liked about Electra uh, that the lyric did just recently, a kind of a minor thing that really wasn't part of the production at all, I don't even know if you necessarily remember this, but the the supertitle panel was actually a little bit stage left. It was mm-hmm. not in the center like it usually is. And that helped sort of uh, create a more natural stage picture. Um, you saw it to look all the way up because it's a massive stage. Um, but uh, it created a more natural stage picture that really complemented the sort of the brutal angles of the, uh, of the set and made it uh, feel a little bit more jagged, a little bit more off-putting. Hmm. And, you know, I've seen super titles, you know, up at the top. I've seen them. Sometimes they're even un- projected. I've seen, on- them, I've seen them projected onto, like, white exactly. tarps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, they can project them into the set. You can put them on the bottom. If you've got a lot of money, you can do what the Met does and put them on the back of chairs. Vienna has those, too, but not very many opera houses do. They're yes. Very, they're, they're really expensive. They're re- I believe it cost the Met uh, $2.7 million in 90s money uh, to install those. That's like the new getting on an airplane, and I'm like, if you don't have entertainment, I don't... <laughs> but I, I, but I think there is an opportunity to be, to be creative directorially Absolutely. with your super titles to put them in a place that is not painful that makes sense that works within the production 
And also, and it doesn't just have to be a big rectangular block with yellow script on top for exactly. three and a half hours. And it can also be, here's a novel idea, it can also be a translation of the script that actually matches the movement of the characters on that stage for that particular production. Yeah. Because I can't count the amount of times where someone references, you know, going on well, their knees or, 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 or going out the door and they're still there and they're standing up and it's... Ugh. It bugs me so much. Just read the translations, guys. I, I also think that from a nuanced standpoint, especially with foreign language, it does add to humor because there's no way that an audience... Oh, absolutely. Have, yeah, right? You know, so it is... They are grossly important um, in certain aspects. But I'm really interested to see what the response is that Eno gets and whether or not moving forward they decide that there's going to be more of these nights where they're like, no super titles because people see it and they're like, wait, I really enjoyed not changing my focus from stage to super title stage to super title and i yeah. think what might be one of the deciding factors is if the prices need to change or if they can be the same price as the nights that do have super titles oh that's because a good point. you're not selling the exact same product anymore and if people want more of one than another especially if it's not you know an, e an even <laughs> distribution there's the economist and me coming out but uh <laughs> get it, back it, in there it's gonna be a, you know like the met did something similar to this with dynamic pricing a couple years ago when they were when they started charging more for shows that had starrier casts mm -hmm. i think that there's an opportunity there might be an opportunity for eno oh absolutely to 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 play around with their pricing models and and probably will they will probably adjust the uh, the way that they determine how many performances they're going to mm -hmm. offer with or without super titles based on how they sell. Yeah. yeah. And I'd probably also affect marketing too, because I don't think you'd want to necessarily sell this to a person who's never been to an opera before. Well, before we move on, do you want to sing, sing that little thing you were telling us oh, about? Yeah. Toby? That's a good point. I did look up. I, I don't know that this is particular. This is from uh, specifically ENO, but it is a translation of Kijerida. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what a tiny f little hand let me warm it for you what's the use of looking we won't find it in the dark yeah i understood every word of that perfectly so. but luckily it's a moonlit night and the moon is near us here yeah Please. okay so, so i gotta but, stop but doing. you're talking but I can definitely, especially later in that aria, when things get you know higher up in the tenor voice, yeah. it might be difficult to figure out exactly what word you're saying, considering the fact that it is not natural English. Correct. And so Correct. that is why I suspect that in the end, you know, is going to continue to use super titles because if they're doing things in translation, those translations don't usually hit the ear in the same way that things that were written in English naturally yeah. do. I mean, really, when you come when it comes right down to it, I think the composer's intention was to have it crooned softly over the radio uh, on a probably a third, I probably started a third too high. That was definitely not <laughs> an A flat. Oh, I was Well, at dying. least now you have new recordings for next year's audition. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got to move on. It's time to crunch some numbers, and this week there are a lot of them. That's right, we're hitting on European Opera House with the Dodson scale, so get ready for some math. That's all next on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. That's right. You're listening to Opera Box Score on WNUR, and we have another Dodson scale to crunch for you tonight. Crunch those numbers. This is for the Opera Nationale de Paris. How was my pronunciation? Close enough. I know. (laughs) It's close enough. So we have gone through, uh, if you're (laughs) unfamiliar with the Dodson scale, first of all, how? Uh, And second of all, go back and listen to our show last week. We interviewed the creator of the scale himself, Doug Dodson. Doug Dodson. Doug (laughs) Dodson. I apologize, Doug. Uh, But he uh, he created the Dodson scale of diversity and originality in programming. And you'll kind of get a sense of how it works as we go through it. So who wants to kind of take the first section? Uh, How about you, Matt? Just uh, the first couple on the list here. All right, so we're starting off with uh, a couple operas that really, the two opera, the first two or three operas on the list are really only getting credit for their ha- for having ma- leading singers. It being singers of color. So Puritani gets one point for Javier Camarena. Uh, mm. La Traviata gets a point for for Pretty Yende, and it being a new production. But we're losing because Traviata is obviously one of the most done operas. Ever. And that's minus 10 points minus on the Dodson scale because, because who hasn't done a million traviatas? And I'm looking at you, Lyric. Um. <laughs> Madame Butterfly has two singers of color in the in the lead, sharing the lead role. Uh, when we to close out the the first main the the first section where the the big winner is going to be Les Andes de Galante, which oh, is yeah. a Rameau kind of opera ballet uh, in a series of four scenes. Um, that is not only pre-1830, but pre-1750, yep. and it's a new production. And, you know, the French are very proud of their history, and Rameau was a huge part of their opera history. Do you know that music at all? Uh, I mean, bits and pieces of it. The lazy up. a-hole in me yeah. didn't look it up. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I listened to that one. All. I think Rameau might be, mo- no no joke, my favorite uh, uh, French composer. He re- he really yeah. writes more melody than you expect in, in, other, in like, the French Baroque of Lully. And oh, also absolutely. that production stars Sabine Devier, who's a fantastic... Uh, French coloratura soprano, so that is really that that I would I would pay to see. Rameau that. is also a, a kind of an expert orchestrator uh, in terms of like uh, sort of programmatic sort of uh, effects music. Mm-hmm. He has lots of storms. He's got lots of earthquakes. Um, um, his librettos are always terrible. Well, plus he had but he all gives it the money in all. the world because oh, yeah. he was basically the court composer. Yeah, he took so, over from Lully, who's yeah. the only person who was legally allowed to write operas so, for a bit. So. <laughs> So his operas all have, uh, almost all have, like, spectacular special effects as well, like, leading into the grand opera days of Meyerbeer. Mm. Yeah. Hey, wait, I, th- I think I have a score that's wrong. Oh, oh, what is it? What's your wrong score? Well, we needed, did we take point, did, wait, did you deduct, where are your deductions on this document, my man? Oh, the, I think, oh, oh, I think, are you thinking about the, uh, the um, it's not the main stage uh, production for Indie Galant? No, 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 I'm looking at Pretty Tani and, um... Il Pirata. 
because there's oh, two that's, yeah. two oh, Bellinis. That's at, that's at yeah. the very end. We that's did true. we did throw that in there. We should no, mention that if a uh, if a composer is uh, represented more than once in the same oh, in season, there. they lose five points. So still, yeah, we can't like take the whole time to explain the Dodson scale. If you listen yeah. to the show by this point, you you, you know gotta it. know you're there. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, but uh, moving on here, we got a couple more. We got a Don Carlo, uh, probably the Italian version because they use Carlo instead of um, the uh, the Frenchified version. So, eh, eh, sure, Verdi. I, I, I like Don Carlo a lot, actually. I, I don't want to be It's a long opera. It. Uh, then they have Le- Buckle uh, Up Five Hours. Yeah. Lear by Raimon, which is a really neat sort of uh, opera. It's kind of a relic of sort of like the mid-century avant-garde. I think it's like, only ever done in Europe. I don't. I haven't heard about. I've never heard of a production it. being done here. But King Lear, that's a fantastic. There's that's a really the, good the rec- opera that Verdi always wanted to write and couldn't yeah. manage it. <laughs> yeah. And this uh, probably couldn't sound less like Verdi. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> it's got quarter tones and junk in there. I, I love it. It's it's right up my alley. And speaking of things that are up my al- alley, uh, Prince Igor. That's plus five points for being a uh, uh, in a language other than German Italian. And uh, uh, English uh, or French, um, and this is Russian, of course. And it's also a new production, which is kind of exciting. Prince Igor is kind of having, it's kind of been having a moment over the past several years. Because uh, I don't think anyone really listens, listened to Prince Igor. And then like five years ago, the Met did it, and now everyone wants to do it. And like, it's got some good music in there. I think it's kind of an interesting piece. Uh, and then speaking of uh, more than one in the same uh Composer representing the same season, Il Pirata. Il Pirata. I don't know this. At all. It's Me old. neither. 1826. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's an early opera by Bellini. It, get, it, it gets done every once in a while if you have a star soprano who really wants to take it on. Uh, it was a vehicle for Callas. It was a vehicle oh, for Caballé. Okay. Sure. There's, there's one of those you know, 19-minute mad scenes at the end of the opera. Love it. Really beautiful, but the plot is is tough are there to sell. pirates in it yes there is a pirate how is it tough to sell if there are pirates in it's it? a like a love triangle <laughs> about pirates i'm uh, sold on you this can opera. really only generally get it done if you're if you're a star soprano renee fleming got the met to do it for her in the early 2000s <laughs> and this is actually just a concert performance so we're gonna deduct oh, that because yeah. that's yeah. clearly a money-saving gimmick yeah, absolutely then we, of course next coming Caballere. up next we have il barbieri di Sevilla, which well i've never heard that? of that opera before then no one i've never heard of anyone doing anything about this bar Barber of Seville. Uh, they do get a point there for uh, Lisette Oporesa. Oropesa. <laughs> Oropesa, sorry. I can't Oropesa. pronounce things. Uh, who is, uh, is a person of color uh, in this one of the main role. And then, um, oh, here we go. L'enfant et les sortiliers. Sortilège. Ça, sortilège. I was so close. But you, I, I appreciated your effort there. I tried so hard. <coughs> That's a Ravel opera, um, and I'm not a big Ravel guy, but I do really like this one. This is an opera that gets done by conservatories all the time because there are nine million characters, and it's mm-hmm. about a little child <laughs> and like enchanted objects coming. Speaking to life. of. It's so, done by all of the young artists. Yeah. So. No, that's minus 10 points right there. As one of your main stage operas, that seems like you're trying to save a little bit of money, Paris. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh tell us who's in uh, Tales of Hoffman, Toby. Um, my girlfriend, Eileen, <laughs> Eileen Perez. Little sweet at her. Congratulate her. Friend, <laughs> I'm going to go show. comment on her uh, Instagram. She'll comment back. <laughs> friend of the show, Eileen Perez. We had her on uh Oh gosh, must have been a couple months ago. It's been a couple months ago. She was a delight. Time uh, flies when you're on opera box score. It's true. It's true. Or not on opera box score, uh, as my <laughs> case may be. 
And then we have another opera in French, which is a new one that I don't know, and I'm not going to try to pronounce. So. Yvonne, Princesse de Bourgogne, or Yvonne, the Princess of Burgundy. Makes sense. That's yeah. a new opera. That was a writ, uh, came out in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a female conductor there, too, uh, which is also... Yeah, there's a, a high score there. 13 total points. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, the so Princess far... Princess of Burgundy, so, so she loves her deep red, seasonally beautiful... <laughs> Wine. <laughs> the sommelier and Toby is waking up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go back to sleep. <laughs> I'm so ready. <laughs> uh, um, I, I have to say, so far, um, we have, we've had a couple of interesting operas in, in a row, but I'm kind of surprised because I feel like most of the season, uh, at least so far as we're going through it, seems to be uh, a little bit on the conservative side. So it, it's kind of funny because their conservative is conservative warhorse, yeah, which right. I mean, like, okay, so duh, we know that. But I really actually like where... When they've gone off the path, they have gone off the That's path. That's true, and I really appreciate that. Because you know we have we have Manon, uh, you know whatever, uh, with pretty Andre, Okay, so that's whoa, pretty whoa, exciting. whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, I, I not like whatever Manon. There's like some we filthy have... beautiful music there. All right, all right. <laughs> filthy beautiful. I want to Don Don Giovanni. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> you can whatever Don Giovanni. Everyone and their mother does Don Giovanni at least once every three years. Yeah, so, it, um, that you. And and some of the and it's fairly routine in terms of the casting as well. You know, yeah, not a lot of that's true. There. Uh, then we have Adriana Lecouvreur, uh, which I've also butchered, despite it being uh, very common. Uh, also, kind of uh, sure, whatever. And then we get uh, back into the Russian again with Boris Gudinov. Yeah, two no Russians j- in one season from a French company. Is I think surprising. that's interesting. Um, it's, uh, I love Boris Gudinov. Yeah, I. I often get asked by people what my favorite opera is, and of course, I can't choose among all my children. Um, but uh, I, I, about fifty percent of the time, I say Boris Gudinov. I love this piece, and I'm so excited they're doing. It. I'm kind of interested to see uh, which version they're doing, because of course, there's five hundred versions. Uh, I imagine it's probably the 1872 version with maybe a, co- a scene from the 1869 thrown in. Uh, it's it's going to have Rene Papa in it, who uh, killed it last time I saw him do this role uh, at the Met. Uh, love it. 10 out of 10. Sold. And then we have Rigoletto. Back to your, like, shrug at Manom. <laughs> yeah, let's... He's let's, holding a grudge. No. I, if you were in the, <laughs> this room, I could describe his eyes. He's, like, laser-focused. No, it was funny because I was sitting here and thinking, I'm like... And I was, like, going through a little bit of the music in my own that I'm like, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, like, that's beautiful. And then I was like, Massonet doesn't write a bad... Op-. And then I remembered <laughs> that I went to Cendrillon and was like, that was a bad opera. <laughs> Sorry, okay, we're back on track. <laughs> oh, uh, back on track sorry. to Rigoletto. Um, you know, <laughs> another off-the-beaten-path choice of Rigoletto. Yeah. We do have a With woman- a woman conductor. Yeah, with uh, Sp- Speranza Scapucci. Um, I don't know her, but that's always exciting to uh, 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 see a woman on the podium. That seems to be uh, sort of one of the areas, I think, where the um, where this company seems to fall down a lot. They, they tend to have a lot of male conductors, uh, male, you know. Not unlike the rest of the world. I mean, yeah. true, true. I, I, I don't I, think they had a they, single I mean, female director. No, they did yeah, not. They yeah. had two female conductors this year, which is embarrassingly better than most. Yeah. I, but 20 productions, no female directors. To yeah, female yeah. conductors. I'm not. I mean, like, eh, do better. And speaking of big point losers, <laughs> La Boheme. That's minus ten just for being Boheme, and no redeeming graces, at least as far as the do- uh, Dodson scale yeah. is concerned on that one. Uh, then we have Cosi Van Tutte, which is always fun, um, depending on how into Mozart you are. Um, uh, we also have Paolo uh, Zot. Zot. It is well Zot. documented that I hate the opera Cosi Van Tutte. 
It and is well documented that Oliver loves the opera Cosi Fan Tutte. Well, you know what? Oliver's I not I come down here. somewhere in the middle of the two of you. I think I, it has some of my absolute favorite music ever, but oh wait, me goodness, too. is it so long. That's like, no, every time I've seen it, which is like 30 billion times, God, we sound like such turds on this show. <laughs> I've seen Cosi so many times, but like every time I see it, I'm like, man, I'm so excited to see Cosi, and then 45 minutes in, I'm like, crap. I'm, there are four I'm, hours left. I gotta go to the bathroom. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, speaking man. of things that are unnecessarily <laughs> long, the whole dang ring cycle. That's right. A new production of four, all four operas in the cycle, throwing them all in there. I think that's one of the exciting things about having a, a, a European company with the resources of the Paris Opera. They can just, you know, throw out a, a new ring cycle like it's nothing, where we here in the States have to release them one at a time and hope people show up in four years for the whole cycle. Um, now, of course, Wagner is a bit of a no-no on the Dodson scale. Um, so this is going to be, play- this is kind of plays into the grand total yes. a lot, depending on how we score it. So there's some debate here. Yes. Is uh, it five points? Is it, are we deducting five for the production or are we deducting five for each show? So you, in in the score... Deducting deductions make sense because it's five points for there being any Wagner at all. Right. And then he actually, the, it specifies in the rules that you lose 20 points for a whole ring cycle. Yes. What we're not sure is do you get five new, do you get the five new production credits <laughs> once per show or once per ring cycle? And the, the answer to that question fell along the lines of how we felt about Wagner. Yes, I do think... <laughs> <laughs> so we just... So we, it balanced itself out then, essentially, yeah. the way we scored it. So we have, we have essentially three different possible scores for this season as a whole. Um, so we could the have... The harshest possible score. The harshest possible score is negative four points for the entire season. And most of that is simply due to uh, the ring cycle, just bringing everyone down. Mm -hmm. Plus repeating Uh, Mozart, repeating Bellini, repeating Verdi, having Traviata and Bohème. Uh, yeah. And having a couple gimmicks in there too, an all an all young artist performance and a concert performance of one of the rarer operas in your season. But if you, uh, but if you're like, hey, we shouldn't count uh, the ring cycle, each one counting off individual, uh, counting off points individually, but as a whole sort of unified production. That's how I view it. That's where I fall. I think that's where I fall too. Uh, that bumps it up to eleven points. And I agree. That's probably the fairest score. And mm. as we uh, as we uh, established with uh, Doug Dodson. Uh, last week, any positive score is a good score on the Dodson scale. So, if we go even further and uh, do what we're calling the Weston curve, the Weston really likes mo- uh, really likes Wagner curve, uh, and ignore um, uh, taking out points for Wagner productions, we bump it up all the way to thirty six. Yes, but that score is meaningless because it <laughs> yes. ignores the parameters of the question. Matt, you said it faster than I could. <laughs> the Dodson scale okay, is infallible, so and I'm ashamed. I, I do think eleven is the correct score. Sure. And if zero is a good score, what do we what do we get with the Matt? 40. 40 was their total. Really? For the season? I missed that I missed that show. I don't know. I think they had 90 was their composite with like 50 deductions. Sure. Math is 40, right? <laughs> yes, that would that would Nine come to 40. Minus five I, I, I do is four. have to say um for a European opera house, I think I was a little disappointed uh from a Dodson perspective. Uh um, There's a, a I don't want to say shocking. There is a really big lack of diversity. Yeah. Yeah. From a from race um from a racial standpoint. Yeah, and yeah. a higher pers- 
and a higher percentage of war horses than you expect from a from a company that doesn't have to do all of its own fundraising. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, to, to have both Traviata and Bohem in a in a season that's you know twenty shows is like a medium season. You think that that's like two and a half lyrics, but it's not it's not as many productions as you would get from Vienna or the Met, where on a, if you're doing that many operas in one year, a certain amount of them are gonna have to be the that that mainstay. Right. Yeah. Rep. I, I think. Uh, I think it's always interesting to do to compare sort of the scores of European houses and American houses because the the the, the landscape is so different. And I feel like if you were to look at this uh, like a, like an American house, you'd be like, oh, they did a great job. Fine, keep moving on. But I, I think they have a bit more of a responsibility to be sort of leading the charge here as a major. Uh, I mean, it's probably the most significant uh, house in France, certainly, and oh, that's one, that's one of the big yeah. the big three. They don't, they have not one but two <laughs> two stages to perform on. They got the Garnier and the Bastille. You know, I mean, it's like I think they could do a little bit better. I would have liked to have seen more diversity in casting, especially uh, in uh, uh, well, not just in casting, but sort of behind the scenes. And I would have loved to see a few of those uh, war horses traded out for some more interesting selections. Uh, I will say that I'm very jealous of the amount of performances where one can see Benjamin Bernheim in, and yeah, I and I don't oh, know yeah. how to say his name because he is French speaking. Oh, we should also mention that we do have Anna Netrebko in this season, uh, and Jonas Kaufmann. Uh, Kaufmann's doing um, uh, the Ring Cycle, yeah. Zygmunt. Uh, what is Netrebko doing? Uh, She's doing Adriana Lacouvre, oh, yes, which, which she just did, did in New York this past year. So they do have the big names coming in. They've got uh, their their gossip columns ready to go. I'm sure, you know. <laughs> yeah, they got a, They have a handful of they have a handful of big stars, and then a handful of uh, music level stars. Uh, I'm just jealous that the I expected to see Benjamin Bernheim more in America this mm. m- this recently, considering how great he was in Faust. I thought that more people would be trying to snatch him up, but that's part of the that five year casting system. I, yeah, it's probably a, f- a couple years down the road before he's before he he gets a chance to make his name more in America. We'll get him next season. All right, we got to move on. Chicago gets hit by another orchestra sh- to strike. Flashbacks, anyone? That's all up next on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendantin Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter page. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Operaland over the past week. 
The Chicago Symphony Orchestra is on strike. Musicians formed a picket line outside the hall this morning in protest of management's most recent offer, that's Monday morning, I should say, which they deem unfair to the musicians. Ricardo Muti has released a statement in support of the striking orchestra members. Paris newspaper Le Figaro has obtained the long list of 10 men and one woman being considered as next director general of the Opera Nationale de Paris. The list includes Alexander Neef of the Canadian Opera Company and Dominique Meyer, the outgoing director of the Vienna Staatsoper. There are no Americans on the list. Utah Opera's production of Mozart's The Magic Flute included a special event for the visually impaired during dress rehearsals for the opera. In addition to being allowed to feel props and costume fabric before the opera began, the company also provided braille scripts and broadcasted a play-by-play -play description of the action on stage to patrons equipped with headphones. Speaking of accessible productions of The Magic Flute, how about a version that features classic video game characters? That's the line of thinking Pacific Opera Project seems to be on with a new production that features Tamino as Link with Pamina as Zelda and a whole host of other characters from the Mario games, Donkey Kong, and more. San Francisco Opera has announced that various top positions at the company will be eliminated by the end of March, including the directors of communications and development. The move is expected to save the company about $5 million a year. Patricia K. Beggs, general manager and CEO at Cincinnati Opera, announced her plan to retire from the company in 2020, calling her role at the Opera House, quote, a dream job. Beggs has worked on the company in some capacity for over 30 years. And on this day, March 11th, it's the birthday of British mezzo Sarah Walker. We celebrate the anniversary uh, of the birth of Maria de Buenos Aires composer Astro Piazzolla, and it was a triple header for premieres with Bellini's I Capuletti e Montecchi in Venice in 1830, Verdi's Rigoletto in 1851, which was also in Venice, and in 1867 in Paris, the premiere of Verdi's Don Carlos. That's your two-minute drill. <laughs> And that, of course, is in celebration of the premiere of Rigoletto. You can call us on air and get your voice heard now. That's 847-866-WNUR. That's our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. Or you can tweet us at Opera Box Score. And uh, who was that singing there, uh, Toby? Who was that? <laughs> yeah. I've, so, is this a tenor that you like? Is this a tenor you or you're interested? It is, guys, it's been a long time since I cuddled with Franco Corelli on air. <laughs> you know? Not my choice for the Duke, usually. I wouldn't, and I wouldn't who would say. you have picked, Matt? I mean, in terms of complete recordings, my favorite one is the one with Alfredo Kraus. With Alfredo Kraus. Who mm. I think uh, is able to use a paring knife instead of only a meat cleaver, which is kind of how I feel about Corelli. Uh, <laughs> But really, the best Duke is Pavarotti. Yeah. It's true. Opera Box Score Hall of Fame member. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, Pavarotti. That's, that's, that's the honor that he ever received. <laughs>
Oh. I'm sorry. It's just been a long time since I heard Corelli on the show, no, so I had to make fair. it happen. Uh, it, it's part of his contract, folks. We can't help it. <laughs> um, so uh, I think a couple of things uh, here that I found interesting, uh, a lot of sort of like money-related things, and I think we want to start in Chicago with the, with the home team, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Uh, again, not necessarily opera per se, but they do operas sometimes. Mm. Yeah, they're going to do Aida this year if, if they're back from strike. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Whew. and uh, I'm I'm really worried about my uh, Bluebeard's Castle tickets with them. Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, but it's it's going to be really interesting because obviously this was not um, the only orchestra to go on strike in Chicago yeah. this season. Uh, the the immediately prior one being, of course, uh, the Lyric uh, yeah. uh, Orchestra. Um, the interesting thing is that it's really hard for hey for a negotiation to go on for 11 months and then reach a deadline and, and pass and fail. Yeah. That, yeah. They've known about this was coming for a long time. Well, oh, the, yeah, the fact that they've been working on it for 11 months, they weren't. They, it was pretty unlikely that they were going to hammer it out in the last week. I think right. they were yeah. bracing for impact. Which means that those two organizations, the union and then... And the board. And the board are far apart. Yeah. And yeah. so it's interesting because, like... Well, Matt, I, you, you wrote in our email chain about this and I'll let you say Yeah, I mean like opinion. union talk is always messy. As a musician, I think that unions are too important for what they do in service of musicians for me not to come down in support of them. Sure. Uh but no one ever wants a strike. I mean a right. strike means that something has broken down. No one ever meantime. wants a strike and no one ever wants to give a musician a raise. Right. From a board's <laughs> perspective. And no arts organization from now until the end of time is going to say... Is ever going to say, oh, it's a it's a good time for a raise. What do you think? Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, part of me, the part of me that also has worked in the private sector gets annoyed that um, people take on this this opinion like, oh, the these people who are performing at the absolute top level of the field don't deserve this salary because right. they have worked... They, I mean, they... More people deserve this salary instead of fewer. I mean, that's not the economics of, of arts management. That it, it just isn't. But uh, I. But that that argument always rubs me the wrong way. Uh, in terms of strikes in general, though, you you know the the statements that come out of both the orchestra unions and the administrations are usually so dialed up to eleven that it can be hard for an observer to, to figure out the truth. Yeah, the just truth. just go back yeah. to the uh the the lyric strike and the things that uh, uh those those uh, press statements that management sent out to uh the normal subscribers. Yeah. Uh, how vitriolic <laughs> it all was. And well, in this particular instance too, it was pointed out, you know, they got raises. They actually did receive raises. This was it's about a pension plan. It's mostly about pensions yeah. and benefits yeah. here. So it's 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 tricky because I mean, I, I do understand. You know, a, a lot of art organizations in the in the in America are sort of floundering for cash, and uh, you can't always that doesn't always reconcile with raising the the pay or making sure pensions go out to uh, orchestra members. But it, it's it's a necessity. Mm -hmm. it, there, you you got to well, find the, the money somewhere. In the end, there will be a resolution, and I think that the immediate question is how it affects the stakeholders, which are the people buying right. the tickets. Yeah. And how long the right. strike will last. Um, so speaking of budget things, San Francisco. So yeah. they, they eliminate four major positions. Director-level positions. Director-level yeah. positions within their... Not all director. Some, I, I think it's about half and half director and, and then lower-level positions also. Uh, mostly in the development, development and communications departments. Right. 
And this was so. What was interesting to me is so. Let's say they eliminate. They they announced four eliminations. There has to have been more because I cannot fathom that those four positions were making up five million dollars, which is combined the, salary. That, and that's about the difference. That's the difference in their in their projected budgets. That projected budgets, yeah. which is another important thing too, is because they're in the middle of actually doing a, a pretty large capital campaign as they reach. I think they're hundred. I don't even remember what the season they're reaching, but I, I don't know. It, it's interesting that. To eliminate those types of positions yeah. in order to to meet a projected budget, to me, what I don't know how opera companies survive without massive development parts. Well, if you look into the last couple of years, they've been cutting budgets, but then as they cut the, bu- the budgets, the revenue was falling too. Sure. But they're they're right at they're they're about even. They're but they've been rating their endowment to cover that shortfall, and that is how companies like New York City Opera end up not existing anymore. No. Whoops. Yeah, I, I do. Um, there's part of me that, that wants to say, you know, <clears throat> well, better. Better that that than you know musicians than the singers and the people putting on the production, uh, but you do need. I do think a lot of positions, particularly at larger companies, um, <clears throat> there, there's certain amounts of overpayment that go on on sort of the administrative level. I really don't think that that happens in the opera world. I really don't. I, I think that you would be hard pressed to find that many uh, people who work in the in- administration of arts companies who feel that they're overpaid. Yeah, sure. I, I don't even at the top. I mean. Andrew Freud took a took a pay Anthony cut. Freud, yeah. Anthony Freud, sorry. <laughs> what? Yeah. And Andrew Davis. I mean, I think they're probably I bet that I bet that they make either close to a million or just over it. Well that's still at the Lyric Opera. But I mean, that's that, still a lot though, right? But it's I'm the leadership really... of the second or third biggest opera company in the country. I think there's something though where where you have to say, yeah, you're the leadership, but the, the leader can't just like sw- swim in no, and I'm not saying that they deserve. I'm not budget. saying that they deserve golden parachutes. It's right. just that when you, when when you look at those, that for for the the amount of skills that it takes to get to one of those positions, that shouldn't be an outrageous figure in right. and of yeah. itself. I I suppose that makes sense. It, it is tricky. Uh, I mean, I, I used to work for a much smaller scale opera company, um, which had literally. Um, Literally, the the best task I've ever seen came out of this very very small company. I don't really want to name any names, but um, uh, but absolutely not a joke. Best task I've ever seen, and um, they were working on a shoestring budget. They had one. They had, I think they had two full time staff members. Two. There were two other part timers, and then one person who came in on a contractual so basis, yes, and that then is, interns. That's possible to do. On the other end of the spectrum, if we're going to compare it to corporate America, right? Yeah. San Francisco is uh, like it's the GE, right? Right. This in is that, <laughs> in that, no, but in that, seriously, it's one of the biggest companies of its kind. Sure. And so, it would alarm me if the CEO of GE went and just like cut all the heads of these departments. Exactly. Well, absolutely. Right. I mean, yeah. that to me would scream desperation and not calm this is how we're going to balance our budget that's like whoa panic anyway so we shouldn't spend too much time on this because we've we've digressed (laughs) sad money things we need to talk about lighter things uh like maybe the video game opera let's go okay i i went and i looked i found pictures and they've got like the full like i know someone who's in this production so i've been seeing yeah i've been seeing pictures (laughs) on my facebook feed and i and i thought it was the coolest idea when i saw them too well you may you may be able to answer the question that i had when i first came across this uh production then how do they get Nintendo to look the other way on this? One? So from this article, it makes it sound like they they're using they're they're getting by using fair use rules because sure. if you use 
parody and thing and and I believe my my uh, knowledge of TV pr- legal procedurals has led me to believe that the term transformative work of art is Ooh. important here. That's how you show that you're different than and you're not just plagiarizing. Right. Uh, so I believe that they're using it to parody both the video games and bits and pieces of the opera itself. And that kind of adding commentary can make some of the copyright laws a little bit more wiggly. Sure. Wiggly jiggly. I, 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 it didn't make me sort of wonder, <laughs> what, uh, what's, what what video game do you think would make a really good operatic adaptation? Like if you were just like a straight adaptation of like a classic video game, uh, what would you want to want, want to do? I mean, Legend of Zelda basically already is an opera, which is I think why they, <laughs> went, to, why they went straight there. Yeah, true, um, true. I'm trying to think of video games. Honestly, I'm, I'm like that dude who played Madden. <laughs> that would make a pretty good. You, 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 there you are no sports the, operas. The, it doesn't work. But there's it's not the, a concept that works. There's the Cleveland to, to a Papua that uh, the the Cleveland Brown opera singer. He would probably be in a Madden <laughs> opera. For you. Oh, that would be fantastic. He's got. He's the perfect person for the job. All right. Well, I'm uh, I'm going to send out a commission to any of our listeners who can write music. We're not going to pay you, but please, absolutely, write that opera for based on a match that Toby plays on Madden. Uh, and <laughs> I, I'll be I there will, for it. I will I watch will, it. I will buy a ticket. But Mad- Magic Flute also like works pretty well for it's this. So it's so adaptable. It's like the I've seen so many like weird fairy tale reimaginings of Magic Flute, and honestly, I think they work better than straightforward retellings these days. And my I, I my favorite. Like... Th- oh yeah, absolutely they do. My favorite part about that was that Mario couldn't walk to the left. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> it's like the attention to detail that makes things like that, like that makes you really appreciate an adaptation. Oh, Plus, I love the fact that the guy who played Mario, who was Papageno in this opera, also was part of the person who re- who adapted the libretto and the first Papageno in Magic Flute was the librettist. It's oh, just like... I love that. It, it was meant to be. Yep. It's I, perfect. I desperately want to see this production. All right, well, we got to wrap it up. Good call. Bad call. <laughs> on Opera Box Score. That's right. It's uh, time to wrap things up here on Opera Box Score. Does anyone have a good call for me or a bad call or a medium call? It was... It was. It almost felt like spring today. I know <laughs> that was a very good call. It's about time. <laughs> I have something that's actually opera related, related to the thing you know we're talking about here on the air. Uh, <laughs> um, an American Dream is coming to uh, Harris Theater via the Lyric. It's coming on uh, Friday and Sunday. I'm going to be there. I'll probably do an MAQ on it next week if I'm able to come in and uh, let you guys know how that went. That's with music by Jack Perla and a libretto by Jessica Murphy Moo. <laughs> my uh, my uh, bittersweet call for this week is that this this next week is going to be my last week on tour teaching the children to love opera. So hopefully I will be getting sick less and on the show more. <laughs> Yay, I can't <laughs> wait for that. Not that we didn't appreciate your husky tones tonight. Um, all right, thank you so much, everyone. And it's time to wrap things up. That is the, it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V O X E R. S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabass.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. And if you do, let us know at operaboxscore at gmail.com so we can send you a free OBS label pin. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho.
For Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera, whether you're on strike or not. We're back on Monday, March 18th at 9 p.m. Central with all your opera stories and our hot takes. Join us then. This is WNUR Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment. Like